The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, please go to www.folfcrc.com. Will you please pray with me one more time? I want to ask God for help. Father, thank you so much that our feet are on solid ground of reality, on evidence, that you don't ask us just to dive in based on myth or legend or dreamy hope, but that we have facts to see, testimony to hear, solid ground, Lord. Help us to see it, and I pray that we would respond accordingly, that, Jesus, we would see how awesome you are, and we would want to know you. We'd want to follow you. We'd want to be with you. We would trust you, devote our lives to you, because there's nobody like you. There's nobody who's done what you've done, and you've done it for us. We pray this in your name for your glory, for our happiness, our joy in you. Amen. So have you noticed that Jesus is everywhere on TV lately? He is. I was at the gym and they had CNN on and what's on? Finding Jesus. I'm watching Jesus at the gym. And and what's on NBC tonight? The Bible part two, right? It's, It's actually amazing to me. National, regular TV channels are full of Jesus, which it's great. I'm all for it. Uh, Can I ask kind of an awkward question, though? No one's saying no. Good. Um, So what? So what? What difference does it make to your life, to my life? What difference should it make? What difference should he make? We're studying the Gospel of Matthew. We've been in this as a church for almost three years, so this is an emotional moment for me. Finishing this book. It's an eyewitness account of the life of Jesus. The last few weeks have we studied this Gospel. Gospel means good news. Matthew's saying this is the best news ever. The last few weeks have we studied this, we've seen Jesus' betrayal, his arrest, his trial, his crucifixion. And today we get to see it the resurrection, he's alive, and it makes all the difference. And today, Matthew, and today in Matthew, Jesus, or Matthew is showing us Jesus' two big claims. Jesus is making two claims, and he intends to make these claims on everyone. So you, do you want to hear this? This is really strong. Look at verse 18. I'd love if you followed along in the Bible. Again, if you, don't, if you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give this to you. Look at verse 18. Look at what Jesus actually says. Verse 18, Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. What? Jesus is saying, I'm alive and I'm king of everything. Everything. Every nation, every culture, every human. I'm king. He's saying, I'm the judge of everyone. He's saying, I'm the one who gets to call good and evil what they are. I set the standard. He says, I'm the one who, in the end, I'm the one who judges and rewards every person who's ever lived. He's saying, history is for me. It's about me. I'm in charge. That's quite the claim. It's not the claim of just a good teacher, is it? He's not just giving you spiritual advice. He's king. He's claiming to be king with all authority everywhere. Wow. And here's the difference Jesus thinks that should make in your life. Look at verse 19. 
Go, therefore, and make what? Disciples. Jesus thinks that because he's king of everything, you should be his disciple. Disciple just means devoted follower. It just means really you're embracing the reality of the first claim. Jesus says, I have all authority. And the disciple says, yeah, we agree and we like that. So a disciple wants to listen to Jesus and trust Jesus and obey Jesus. A disciple is somebody who devotes their life to him, heart, soul, mind, and strength, all devoted to Jesus. Two humongous claims. Jesus is saying, I have all authority and you should be my disciple. Now let's be honest, how do you feel about this? It's kind of scary, isn't it? It's all-encompassing. It feels demanding. It's asking a lot. It's asking a lot. He's not asking you to hit church every once in a while. Though that would be great. You're always welcome. But that's not even what he's asking. He's saying, I want it all. I want all of you all the time. Because I'm king of everything. So the question I'm asking, because listen, even as a pastor, I, I feel threatened by this sometimes. It's so huge. The question we're asking is, okay, why would I want to do that? Why should I believe, Jesus, you have authority over everything? Why would I want to do that? And two, is it safe to devote my entire life to you? Are you worthy of this? Will this hold up? Will I regret this? Will I regret giving up control to you? Why would I do this? And so we've got these two claims. He has all authority and you should be his disciple. But then we also need some motivation. And Matthew's going to give this to us. It's right here. The motivation, first of all, for believing in Jesus' authority is that he literally, physically, actually rose from the dead. Is that, would that be good enough evidence for you? Somebody's like, hey, I'm king of everything, you should follow me. You'd be like, no, you're not. And somebody might say, well, what if I die the way I predict it and then rise from the dead the way I predict it three days later? Is that good enough? I guess you'd be like, okay. Prove it. He did. It's an appeal to the mind. He rose from the dead. Tim Keller is a pastor and an author. Listen to what he says. Tim Keller writes, If Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. That makes sense to me. Did he rise from the dead? If he didn't rise, Christianity is stupid. Let's quit. If he did, Jesus has all authority. And if he has all authority, then we should devote our lives to him. We should be his disciples. And here we need an appeal to the heart. I hope that you'll see by the end of this moment we have together that Jesus offers you what no one else can possibly offer you. He offers you your deepest heart's desires, the things you need the most, the things you're looking for, They can only be found in him. And Jesus promises, if you devote yourself to me, you'll never regret it. I'll never let you down. 
So that's our job this morning from the text, from the scriptures, to think about the reality of Jesus' resurrection and therefore his authority, and also to respond to this in a way that makes sense, to respond by being his disciples because he's worthy of it. So are you ready? Let's walk through this together. We get to see these events through the eyes of what I think are some of the world's bravest women. I have never met these women, but I love them. I respect them. Because you see, Matthew wasn't here for most of the events he's telling us about this morning. When Jesus was arrested, what, Thursday night, it was by a violent mob in the middle of the night, swords and torches, clubs. Well, all the disciples, they ran. And I guess we kind of looked down on them for that, but maybe we would have run too. But when this special group of women were alerted to what had happened, they came and as best they could, they stuck with Jesus through all these events, all the way to the end. Brave, brave women. And they saw some things nobody else saw. Nobody else. But it's hard to imagine what they've been through as they wake up Sunday morning. That's how chapter 28 begins. After the Sabbath, towards the dawn of the first day of the week, it's Sunday morning. Let's remember what they saw, what they experienced. They may have been up all night. You know, how, many of you, how many of you, you know what it's like to lose someone you love very much and to lose them too early? Heartbreaking. The grief is, is unspeakable. That's what happened to these ladies, but no offense to you, but it was probably worse because they watched him unjustly tried, beaten to pulp, tortured, and murdered in the most brutal way known to man. They watched him crucified. What does that do? Not only that, their whole world came down because Jesus was defining life for them. To, to them, he was the Christ. He's the promised king. He's the answer to all of God's promises. So it's like in one moment, the person you love the most tortured, murdered, and your entire belief system, everything you believe about life, caught on fire and burns to ashes. Everything went wrong for them. And yet somehow they show their love by their faithfulness. They were there as his body was taken down from the cross. They participated as it was wrapped in the spices and the cloths. They saw him buried there in the rich man's tomb. By the way, that's Notable, a lot of times if you're crucified, you're the, you're the scum of the earth. That's the point of crucifixion. Everybody's saying, you're the scum of the earth. And so they'd either be left on the cross just to rot, or birds would peck away, or they're thrown into mass graves. This is unique because one of Jesus' followers was a rich man, and only rich men have tombs like this. It was a new tomb dug out of the rock, big hole in the rock, with this... Um, wedge that rolled down in front, a big circular rock disc that would roll down and shut the door and close it up tight so it's secure. That way nobody can come and steal anything you put in the tomb. Well, one of Jesus' disciples, a rich man named Joseph, he had just had this tomb made, and he shows his love and his devotion to Jesus, takes quite the risk, asks Pilate for the body, and places Jesus' body in that tomb, and the women were there with him. They saw Jesus' body go into the tomb. They saw the door shut, fitting into the groove. Then they went home. Maybe they slept. Maybe they didn't. 
And they came back at dawn Sunday morning, and wow, are they going to be surprised. Surprise. They're overwhelmed by what they saw. In these few verses, fear is mentioned four times. Matthew's showing me this is chaotic. This is surprising. This is shocking. First thing to shock them was there were Roman soldiers guarding the tomb, probably 16 of them. That's how it worked. The ladies wouldn't have known what has happened, but Matthew tells us how this came about. In the last chapter, we know that Jesus' enemies knew that Jesus had predicted he would rise from the dead. And so they thought, well, now that we've killed him, there's a danger that the disciples will try to steal the body, start a new story, right? Oh, he's alive. Steal the body. So he says, well, let's not let them steal the body. So they ask Pilate, hey, can we have some soldiers? And Pilate's like, sure, go guard the tomb of a dead man. Gives them soldiers. So the soldiers are guarding the tomb, and they seal it. So it's like police tape that says, this belongs to Rome. So really, on pain of death, this tomb is well guarded. If a Roman soldier falls asleep on duty, supposedly he can be lit on fire and thrown off a cliff. So there's some motivation, okay? Plus there's 16 of them. They'd have four on watch, the rest of them sitting, then they take turns. Well guarded. Plus it's sealed, Roman police tape. If you, you break that seal, that's pain of death as well. Well guarded dead man. And the women get to the tomb and there it is, guarded by soldiers. You know what? Wouldn't that be enough to mess with you? Wouldn't that be enough to shock you? Wouldn't that be just one more insult? Would you like to go visit the tomb of someone you love so much and it's guarded by the police and you can't get there? It's like, enough already. You tortured him, you killed him, will you leave us alone? But that's just the beginning. It's just the beginning. Verse 2, behold, there was a great earthquake For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. To me, that's totally like trash talk. (laughs) And his appearance is like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. Now, when you teach the Bible in other places in America and you talk about earthquakes, everybody's like, I don't get it. But we, we know this. Do you remember your first one? I do. It's the end of the world. (laughs) Add that to being up all night, your friend is dead, Roman soldiers, earthquake. These poor ladies. Then the glowing man that you can't look at. He's like lightning. And he's so awesome and powerful that the Roman soldiers all faint to the ground. Now one of my questions is, if the Roman soldiers, and you would imagine these guys are at least somewhat hardened, tested, toughened. If they're all fainting, how come the ladies aren't? One reason could be these are tough ladies. (laughs) The reason I think is because the angel liked these ladies. He does. He likes them. He knows about them. Look what he says to them, verse 5. Don't be afraid. (laughs) You almost want to hear them going, okay, crucified Jesus, soldiers, earthquake, you're glowing, we're afraid, okay? (laughs) Don't be afraid. I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He's not here. He's risen just as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly. Tell his disciples he's risen from the dead. Now, you'll notice that the angel didn't come to let Jesus out. It's not like Jesus was like, oh, I'm alive. 
Now, Jesus doesn't need help getting out. He's free. He's alive. The angel came not to let Jesus out, but to let the ladies in. You see, folks, this is amazing. The ladies saw the body go in the tomb and the door shut. When they came back, the door was shut. And in addition to the door being shut, it was sealed. And there's a group of soldiers. They know what's in the tomb. And when that tomb is opened, there's nothing in the tomb. He's alive. He's alive. What's Matthew trying to show you? He's alive. Witnesses upon witnesses upon witnesses, the best being, the first being, these women. Now, how many of you struggle with the miraculous aspect of this a little bit? You don't just want to believe in unicorns and Jedis and pots of gold at the end of the rainbow. And you're like, you're asking me for too much. You're asking me to give my life to Jesus. And then you're asking me to believe in these miracles that seem fanciful. Listen, I, I feel that. I do. But can I ask that we just check our assumptions? Let's check our assumptions. And are our assumptions rational? The polls would say that most of you, and you hear you are on, at church on Sunday, probably most of you believe in God. Most people still would say that God created everything. Now, can you ponder for a moment how hard that would be? If God made the world, now of course he made the world to normally run according to physical law. That helps for, for human thriving, doesn't it? Isn't it nice to know that gravity is always going to work the same way? That helps us live. And yet, can't that God act above those laws occasionally to communicate himself? Couldn't he do, if there's a God, couldn't he do miracles? Of course he could. Of course he could. And if you can make the world, is it hard to raise the dead? I don't think so. And listen, even if you don't believe in a God, you still have to believe in miracles, don't you? Life from non-life. Something from nothing. The complicated from the simple and all randomly and by accident. You see, you still have, that takes some faith. The thing is, as you believe in those miracles, the problem is there's just no one there to do them. When you believe in God, when you know that there's God, it makes sense that there's God, then he can do miracles. The point is, are they well attested? Is there reason to believe that these miracles happened? The big question for Matthew and the rumor he was running into as he wrote this letter was some were saying that the disciples stole the body. Did you see that? Some were still saying the disciples wrote, stole the body. Now, scholars generally agree Matthew wrote this in A.D. 60-something. So it's about 30 years after Jesus. And the story was, well, the, the body was stolen. Can we think about that just for a second? There's only three parties who could have stolen the body. One would be the Romans. Would the Romans want to steal the body? And Pilate had Jesus crucified in order to avoid a mob, to avoid a riot. Does he want Jesus to be alive now? No, he, he wants this over. He wants this done. He sent guards. The, the tomb is sealed. The Romans aren't stealing the body. What about the religious leaders of the Jew? Are, are they going to steal the body? 
Of course not. They're the ones who wanted Jesus dead in the first place. They're the ones who asked for the tomb to be guarded. They're not going to steal the body. Okay, was it the disciples? Did the disciples steal the body? And if you read the historical documents about the disciples, they don't come off to me as smart enough to start a conspiracy like this. They never really got it, did they? <laughs> Just, it never sunk in what Jesus was doing. Secondly, what would be the payoff for this? You know, you sneak in, you grab the corpse, and you, you take it home, and then Jesus rose, and they're all going to be killed, save one, and they're all going to suffer greatly for this message that Jesus rose. What's the motive for the lie if it brings you suffering? How many of you, you lie in order to further suffer? That, now, of course, when you lie, you do further suffer, but that wasn't your motive. Your motive was to get out of suffering somehow. Why would they do this? They wouldn't. It makes no sense that they would. Plus, they're going to have to beat up a group of Roman soldiers. Come on. The soldier's story isn't a fight. They came and they beat us up and we couldn't stop them. <laughs> the Roman soldier's story is a nap. There's more to say than just an empty tomb. There's more to say. Look at the women's story in verse 9. Look at what these ladies reported. Verse 9. What a moment. Can you imagine this moment? You saw Jesus die. You've come. Your, your life is just a mess right now. You can't understand what's going on. And behold, verse 9, Jesus met them and says, greetings. Now that's funny too. Because here he is. I mean, if this is true, this is the most shocking, amazing, incredible moment of your life. And he's like, what's up? <laughs> it's just a casual greeting. Hey, how are you? And they do all they know to do. They fall at his feet and they worship. This reminds you that the word worship isn't just like doing liturgy stuff, stand up, sit down, say a few things. It's awe and joy at someone you love who's everything to you. Jesus is a relationship to them. He's a person to them. They know him. They love him. He's everything to them. He's changed everything for them. For them to see him is just, well, it's a picture of heaven. They're happy. And even Jesus has to say, don't be afraid. You're killing me, right? Go and tell the brothers they're going to see me in Galilee. Wow. Y'all, what's the only way to find historical truth? You can't put it in a test tube, right? It's not repeatable. There's no time machines as of yet to go back and look. Only way to know historical truth is by the testimony of the witnesses. That's it. Can I recommend to you these women and their testimony? Listen, when you want to investigate something historically, one of the things you're interested in is called embarrassing inclusions. Embarrassing inclusions. So if there's a testimony of a story, well, I don't know about you, maybe this will be obvious, people don't like to be embarrassed. Do you like your friends to tell the story about you where you messed it all up? <laughs> where you screwed it all up? Can we omit that part out of the story? Right? And so one way to know that a testimony is historical is if it incriminates the witnesses. That's one thing that's so amazing about the Gospels is they show you very honestly how clueless they were, clueless the apostles were. 
But I don't know if you're aware of this, but the National Organization for Women did not have a strong following in first century Palestine. There wasn't a huge feminist uprising as of yet. In fact, a woman's testimony was not allowed in court. It carried no weight. Now, on behalf of all men in the world, I apologize. But that's the reality. They were second rate. Okay. If you're going to fabricate a story, let's dream it up so we can convince everybody, and you're in first century Palestine, are you going to have women as the first and ultimate witnesses of the resurrection? So the women saw him, and the PR guy's like, hey, can I make an adjustment here? Um, you're not going to want to use women as the first, first testimony. That's not going to work. There's only one reason why women would be recorded as the first ultimate eyewitness testimony of Jesus' resurrection. And do you know what that reason is? It's true. It's true. It's real. Jesus rose from the dead. And if Jesus rose from the dead, we have to listen to everything he says. If Jesus rose from the dead, he does have all authority in heaven and on earth. It's truth. It's reality. It's entirely reasonable to believe in the reality of the resurrection. And so the question is, so what? How will we respond? I was amazed to read a Rasmussen poll that said 65% of Americans believe Jesus rose from the dead. Can, can I be frank with you? That means a lot of us have this belief we have and no life to follow it at all. It's an amazing distance between, oh yeah, he rose from the dead, he's king of everything. What does it mean to your life? Not much. Saw it on TV one weekend. Does that seem ironic or strange or disconnected? That's what we do as people, isn't it? Listen, I'm, I'm, the first, I'm the first criminal on this one, okay? I'm the pastor, okay? So I have to, I have to wear that title. People, what do you do? I'm a pastor. Oh, and I, I always imagine them thinking, boy, I, I was expected you'd be way more like holy and spiritual than you actually are. I know. I know. I know all this stuff, and I talk about it all the time. And so often there's a huge disconnect between what I believe and what I actually do. How is this possible? Well, I'll be honest with you, it's a picture of my sin problem. I'm inclined to be against God. I'm inclined to be selfish. I'm inclined, when Jesus says, I have all authority, I'm inclined to say, you can have some authority, I'm going to take most of it. Maybe you feel that way as well. But do you want to respond in a way that corresponds to reality? Do you want to live in what's real and what's true and what's beautiful and what's ultimate? Jesus is the authority over everything. He rose from the dead. What would it mean to respond? What would it mean to be consistent? What would it mean to have integrity on this issue? Matthew is showing us here examples of different people's responses. Because here's the strange thing. Jesus has said he's authority, and then he says, you should be my disciple. And here's the strange thing. The truth won't be enough for you to be his disciple. Truth won't be enough. 
How many of you are kind of silently agreeing with me? Look at this example in verses 11 to 15. It's a sad story. While they were going, behold, verse 11, some of the guard went into the city. So the guard's like, we have a problem. <laughs> we can't abandon our post. Some of you stay here. Some of us, we're going to go and talk to the chief priest and be like, oh my gosh, we have a problem. So they went into the city and told the chief priest all that had taken place. Do you think that was embarrassing for them? So there was an angel and we all fainted and the body's empty now. And we just woke up. What do we do? <laughs> Verse 12, when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciple came by night and stole him away and while we, were, while we were asleep. And if it comes to the governor's ears, we'll satisfy him. We'll keep you out of trouble. Okay. So they took the money and did as they were directed. This story has been spread among the Jews to this day. It's a sorry story. Why is it sorry? Well, are you convinced that 16 Roman soldiers would all fall asleep at the same time? with the fear of being lit on fire and thrown off a cliff? I'm not convinced. Secondly, walk with me on this one. So we were all asleep, okay? And the disciples came and stole the body. I don't mean to be awkward, but can I ask a question? How did you know it was the disciples? Since you were asleep. They left a note. So the people who represent God to the people in Israel, chief priests, religious people, churchified people. By the way, we just got to pause right here. Isn't it good to see, even in the Bible, that sometimes religious people are the worst of all? Can I get an amen? Sometimes they're the worst of all. If you have had a bad experience with church, I'm sorry. So have I. So have we. The biggest enemies to Jesus and his gospel are not the pagan sinners. It's the religious people who think they're good without him. They think they're good without him. We don't want to be that way at this church, do we? There's not one of us in here that's good without him. We need him. We need him. But he's making us better. So ironic because here the religious leaders are covering things up, lies and bribes, right? The religious people are covering it up with lies and, lies and bribes. Why? 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 I can, I can relate to them. What would it mean for this chief priest to face the evidence? Because who has better evidence than he does right now? Think about his story. I heard, I, I know Jesus did miracles. And I heard him say he was going to rise from the dead on the third day. So I set a guard at the tomb and had it sealed. And now the very soldiers I sent have come to me saying, an angel came, they fainted, and the tomb is empty. You would think the evidence would start to push him to, maybe Jesus is the Son of God and he did rise from the dead. But what happens for him next if he does that? What happens for him next? He's going to have to admit that he's not okay all by himself. The lie will be cracked and broken. He'll have to, he's a public figure. He will have to say to the people, I was wrong. 
hard to get it out. He would have to find Jesus and say, I am totally in your hands. I have sinned against you. You're the king. You have authority. If I don't have your mercy, I'm screwed. I'm broken. I'm hopeless. Please forgive me. He would have to do that. He would have to make changes that he would find difficult, nearly impossible. He would have to sacrifice. His life would have to change. And he hits this evidence, and he feels the suck on what that would mean for his life, and he's like, pay him off. Can't go there. How many of you have been just like that sometimes? Just like that. I'm not ready for what it means to admit that Jesus is the risen Christ, because it's going to demand everything from me. Winston Churchill once said, I love this quote, men occasionally stumble over the truth, but most of them pick themselves up and hurry off as if nothing ever happened. (laughs) We're going to watch Jesus on TV all weekend and keep trucking. How will we respond? How will we respond? I love how gracious and soft the Bible is because you don't just see people suppressing the truth. It's there. Some suppress the truth. Look at verses 16 to 17. Again, so honest and so kind. Verse 16. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. In verse 17. When they saw him, they worshipped. But some, some what? Doubted. Isn't that kind that that's in there? It's so kind. Now, these people aren't cynics, right? They're not just, they're not, they're the cynics in the good sense. They want to be convinced before they make a commitment. They're not antagonists, right? They're on the mountain. This is probably the group of 500 that go on the mountain. And some, even though Jesus is there, they're, and really maybe a better translation of this Greek word would be they're hesitant. I just don't know. It's too serious for me. I'm just not sure. I need time. I need to think about this. I need to, I need to process this. <sighs> Isn't it good to know that there's room for you, if that's you right now? There's room for you. There's room for you here at this church if you're doubting. There's room for you. There's room for questions. There's room for patience. We'd love to serve you. I'd love to be a resource for you if I could on any of those doubts, on any of those difficulties. But you see here the invitation of Matthew in the text to be like, if you're hesitant, if you're not sure, it's okay. Just come and check it out for a while. Just come and dip your toes in for a while. You don't have to commit right away. You don't have to do it right now. Just, just dip your toes in. Feel it out. See, see what you think. Grow into it. It's okay. You're welcome here. I love this. I need this because sometimes I have doubts. But this is to where we get Jesus saying, hey guys, I, I do have all authority. I rose from the dead and you should be my disciple. But here's where he seems to be encouraging us and saying, I'm good for it. You can trust me. I'm good for it. Look at what he says. Now books and books and books have been written on this passage. I think I have spoken from it probably five times. There's so much in here. I just want to show you a few things from verses 18 to 20. And this is what I want you to see. The one who has all authority offers everything you most deeply need. Because I know truth isn't enough for for us to be disciples. We need to see that it will satisfy us and fulfill us that we will want him. 
And here Jesus offers in these verses, in a way no one else can, identity, purpose, security, and joy. And these are what you want. You want to have significance. You want to have value in who you are. You want it desperately. Sometimes we look for it in status, in work, in money, in sex, in boyfriends or girlfriends. We want it. We want to be seen as worth something. And when we pursue those things, they always seem hollow. It's not enough, is it? You never make it. Jesus is the only one who can really give it to you. Second, secure purpose. Purpose. Why are we here? Why? 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 What is this for? Jesus can give this to you. Third, security. Anybody scared to death of what's happening in the world all around us? Ah, where's your security? How do you know it's going to be okay in the end? Only Jesus can give this to you. Last, joy, happiness, satisfaction. It's what you want. Let me show you. Identity. First of all, Jesus says, when people become disciples, baptize them. You've heard of baptism, right? Did you know this was the key to your new identity? What? I'm not talking about the thing we do in church. We do do that, and that is awesome. But I'm talking about the real thing that happens to you. Baptism. It starts with Jesus. You know, we've been talking about his resurrection. Okay, he rose from the dead, but why was he dead in the first place? Why did he die? Jesus died to do what you could never do for yourself. See, God has a law of justice and righteousness and goodness. This is what it means to live a good life. You can think of the Ten Commandments, right? Don't lie, don't steal, don't covet. Don't put your hope in anything other than the true God. Don't commit adultery. Or Jesus sums it all up like this. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. You know, if I compare myself to the worst person I know, I can make myself pretty, feel pretty good about myself. You guys ever do this? At least I'm not like that. Unfortunately, that is not the standard God will use for your life. It'll be his commands. And I'm striking out already at love your neighbor as yourself. No. As myself? I'm surface level kind to my neighbors, generally. To love them as myself? I don't keep that. I intentionally don't keep that. I'm guilty. That's just one little standard. You see, we're guilty before God. We sin. I think our hearts know it. Our hearts know it. And Jesus did what we couldn't do. He lived a perfect life. The only one to never, ever sin. And then he dies on the cross as a substitute in our place. That's the judgment I deserve, ladies and gentlemen, the cross. Jesus says, Matt, let me take it for you. I love you. It's amazing. And so he's punished for my sins instead of me. God is still just and still holy. The sin gets the punishment it's deserved, but another takes it in my place. It's love, folks. It's the most loving thing that's ever been done that Jesus would die for you. And then he rises as the exclamation point saying, yep, it worked. He's the son of God who did it. He paid for your sins. And baptism, the idea of baptism in the Bible is when you trust in Jesus and you say, yeah, I need that. I need you. God unites you to Jesus, connects you to Jesus. And so baptism is, is the idea that just like Jesus died, your old life of sin died with him. All your shame, all your embarrassment, all the skeletons in the closet, he washed that away. It's gone. Wouldn't that be great? You can have it. 
It's gone. And then you're raised to new life just as Jesus rose from the dead. You have a new life now to know God as your Father. Jesus said, baptize him in the name, singular, of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm not going to try to unpack the mysteries of the Trinity right here, but let me just show you this. Baptism is a picture of your embrace by the triune God. The Father God has said, I will have this person as my child, and he sent his son Jesus to accomplish your salvation, and he sent the Holy Spirit to change your life, flick the light switch on so that you believe, and he's bringing you to himself so that you can be called daughter of God, son of God, loved, and you don't have to earn it. You don't have to pursue it. It's a gift. Loved. This changed my life when I started to believe this. I have the identity I need, and it's free. This might sound weird to you, but I used to put my identity in how well I perceived my church to be going. Even pastors can be weird with their idolatry. Probably especially pastors can be weird with their idolatry. So God loves me if the seats are more full than they were last time. And if they're not, then I suck. It's the way I felt. Do you know how terrible that would be if I put my identity in how often you come to church? Or how often you don't? Or if you brought friends? I will die. I'll die. I can't do it. It's not a good... You say, you, say you need counseling. Why are you doing this? Okay, you do the same thing. Where are you putting yours? Just a different flavor. But oh to see, oh to see that I'm loved and it never changes. I'm loved in Jesus never changes. I don't need all the people to do all or say all the stuff to make me loved. I'm loved in Jesus. I have an identity in him. God loves me. An identity as a free gift. Wow. I know you want that. It's yours if you want it. Be his disciple. He rose from the dead. He has all authority. Second, purpose. Jesus will say in these verses, Teach disciples to obey everything that I've commanded. There's only one person where you should obey everything they've ever commanded. That person needs to be the authority of heaven and earth and who died on the cross for you and rose from the dead. (laughs) Is he trustworthy? Is he trustworthy? Does he know how things work? Does he know what things are for? He's the only one who knows what things are for. And when he gives you a command or an instruction or a truth, it's for your good. It corresponds to reality. It's life. It's joy. If you want to know purpose, why am I here? Why work? Why marriage? Why kids? Why this? Why that? Why everything? Jesus is like, I know. You want to listen? You want to listen? I'll tell you. Purpose, meaning, can be found in Jesus. He knows. He made it. And he loves you, you can trust him. Also, security. Look at this last line. Behold, I'm with you when? Always, to the end of the age. I'm with you. That doesn't mean you're going to have an easy life. Can I get an amen from Christians who've been Christians for longer than a week? It doesn't mean you're going to have an easy life. Jesus didn't have an easy life. But it means he'll be with you. You, he, will be with you. 
I think if we did testimonies today, a lot of us would say that's the best part of being a Christian. He's with me. He's been with me through it all. I have his comfort. I have his presence. I have his guidance. I have his assurance. He's with me. Even to the end, even to death, even through death, Jesus will be with you. He'll greet you at the other side of the door. He'll be with you. You'll be with him. He'll be with you forever. Security. I'm not a prophet, but one day you will get sick and die. Yeah. You will lose your health. You will lose every relationship that is important to you. You will lose it. You will, all your money is, will be worthless to you one day. You're going to lose it all. Why are you putting all your hope in the things you're going to lose? Enjoy them. Don't put your hope on them. Where's your security? Why don't we put our security in the one who has all authority in heaven on earth, the one who rose from the dead? Why don't we be his disciples and find our security in him? Can't be taken away. He gives security and he gives joy. And you might say, well, where's the word joy in this text? It's everywhere. It's in the word worship. Were the women bored when they saw Jesus and fell to his feet? Or were they the happiest they'd ever been in their lives? Because they were with Jesus. And they knew him and they knew his love. When the disciples saw him and they worshipped, were they like, what do we do now? Is it a bow? Is it a citizen? Or were they so happy? Because they were with Jesus. They were happy. Why does Jesus say, go and make disciples? You know, I was sitting on a plane once, and, and we had a great conversation with this atheist guy, and it was friendly, and we both enjoyed it. But he told me he thought it was really awful that Christians evangelized. Um, listen, I don't always win the conversations I'm in, okay? I think I won this one. <laughs> he said, I think it's really awful that you evangelize. And I'm like, so you're trying to convince me of your worldview that your worldview is better than mine right now. Yeah! Are you evangelizing me? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Listen, everybody should be able to evangelize everybody. These are important questions. But when Christians do it, at least here's the motivation we're supposed to have. Okay? Here's the motivation we're supposed to have. We don't always have it, but this is the motivation we're supposed to have. It's love. It's love. Somebody once said that a Christian telling another person about Jesus is like one beggar telling another beggar where the bread is. And wouldn't it be cruel of me if I had found something that was the ultimate truth, that gave me an identity no one else could give me, that saves me from my sins and the wrath of God, that gives me purpose and truth, and that gives me security and everlasting joy, and I was like, but I'm not going to share it with you. Wouldn't that be a little cruel? All evangelism is, or all it should be for the Christian, is sharing the joy. Look at Jesus. Look at who he is. Look at what he's done. Look at the love, the undeserved love he gives us. Look at his life, his death, his resurrection in our place. That's all Matthew wants to do with his letter. That's all I want to do this morning. We've seen it, I hope. He has all authority. He rose from the dead. He's worthy of our devotion because in him is everything you ever needed and he will never fail you. So Jesus is on TV and it's Easter. So what? Here's what. 
He died for you, which means no one loves like him. He lives, which means he reigns. So, the only logical, joyful response is to devote yourself to him as his disciple because he's worthy of it. And you'll never regret it. Let's pray. Jesus, I love you. Father, thank you so much for your grace. I pray that everybody here knows that no matter how bad their past is, no matter what they think they've done, that your cross is enough to pay for that, that your love is big enough to forgive them, to save them, to make them right, that you are willing to baptize in our hearts every single person here, to, that if we just look to you and trust in you, you'll connect us to Jesus and his righteousness is ours. His death on the cross is ours, and we have that new identity right now, instantaneously, as loved child of God. Thank you, Jesus, that you're alive. And I pray for those of us who want to follow you and be your disciples, you would help us to appreciate the identity that we have, that we would continue to grow in learning to obey all that you've commanded, you're trustworthy, you're right, and that we would go and we would make disciples of all nations because... There's no one better than you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.